Last Sunday is the month we love to do Family Sunday, which is a time where just our children, they stay in service uh, together with us. So not only do they experience the whole worship service, like all of the music, but they will be able to partake of communion with us if they've been baptized and if that goes with what you have done as parents uh, on your teaching there. But we also, we love for them to be a part of just the sermon and for them to be able to watch you as you uh, worship with others. And so I want to remind you, as adults, you have a great disciple-making role. Uh, There's lots of little eyes today, and those little eyes like to look around and see what's happening. And so you teach them on, on how you participate in the service, through the sermon, through communion, through prayer, through worship, through all that you do. You're helping them see just ways that we gather and how we joyfully praise our God when we come together as a church. Um, today's Halloween, right? Otherwise known as? <sighs> Jacob Baker, did you hear that? So... Uh, on, uh, on youth group, there was a couple kids who were a little unfamiliar with Reformation Day, but don't worry, we, uh, we corrected that, um, that mistake. So today is Reformation Day, and I want to take a few moments and, and just explain why we call this Reformation Day. Uh, today, 504 years ago, Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the Wittenberg door. And, and while Luther lived half a millennium ago, isn't that crazy? It's just crazy to think half a millennium ago, there's much we can learn from his life, from the Reformation, uh, from, from what we can observe in church history. Luther was born uh, on November 10th, 1483. His father was a copper miner, but he, was, um, he wanted Luther to grow up and become a lawyer. So in January 1505, Luther graduated and obtained his master's degree for law. But on July 2nd of that year, so about seven months later, Luther was caught in a thunderstorm. And it was so severe, he didn't think he was going to live. He cries out to God and says, God, if you will keep me alive, if you will save me, I will leave law and I will go into the ministry and I will preach your word. And so that's what he did. And so he left a life of law, turned his full attention to the church. Now, at that time, the Roman Catholic Church had already begun to partake or to uh, deviate from the authority of Scripture. Um, The Roman Catholic Church uh, taught that man was under the wrath of God, and our only escape was through works righteousness, which means we have to work our way out of the very wrath of God in order to obtain salvation. But Luther realized, and he rightly realized, if we are sinful, there is no way we can work ourselves out of God's wrath. And so this truth tortured Luther day and night. But it's as, he's, as he studied and as he began teaching Romans, Galatians, the book of Hebrews, what we've been in, and the book of Psalm, Luther discovered the gospel. And he realized, hold on, we don't save ourselves by our works, but we're saved by the very grace of God. Salvation is a gift. And so he began to teach that and he began to proclaim that. Now at that same time, Leo X was the pope. Now, Leo loved the arts, 
and he had bankrupted the Vatican in trying to, to um, in his appreciation of the arts. And so they ran out of money as they were building St. Peter's Basilica and uh, the Sistine Chapel, which was painted by Michelangelo. They didn't have any money to paint it. So they needed more money, so they decided to come up with a money-making scheme. Thus entered a man named Johann Tetzel. Anyone here of Tetzel? So, uh, don't name your kid Johann Tetzel. <laughs> Not a good idea. So, he comes up with the great idea, what if we sell something called indulgences? So, think Monopoly, okay? Everyone, everyone's familiar with Monopoly, right? Uh, one of the best cards is the get-out-of-jail-free card. So, your indulgences get out of purgatory for free card. Now, purgatory is not hell, um, but it's a place where, where you would go and you would finish paying off your sins if you had not reached heaven yet. So you would go there, you'd, you'd pay for your sins, and the thing is, is you could buy an indulgence so you could bypass purgatory and go straight to heaven. You could buy them not only for yourself, you could buy them for loved ones, they made for great birthday and Christmas presents. They even created a jingle, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. You can't make this stuff up. Um, so the Roman Catholic Church, this is, this, is where they, this is where they are, and they completely deviated from the truth of the gospel. And, and now they're selling these indulgences, so something had to be done. So Martin Luther he writes these 95 theses, and then what was common practice at that time, he went and nailed them on the Wittenberg door. So don't think that when he's nailing them on, that's some like crazy act of violence that he's doing. That was a normal way to start a conversation. So he nails them to the Wittenberg door because what he thought could happen is that there could be a conversation with the Roman Catholic Church and that, we could be, and that it could be brought back into the alignment with Scripture. But that was not a conversation the Roman Catholic Church was looking at having. They had money, they had power, they had tradition. They were not going to lose it. So the Reformation at that point was inevitable. Now you might be saying, well, what does that have to do with Hebrews? Um, or you might even say, why do we need to understand church history? Uh, Stephen Nichols, a historical theologian, he said this, um, church history is like a grand classroom focused on living out Christ's final command to the church to be disciples in this world. I just want you to think about that. When we look at church history, don't think about so much we're, we're learning about dates and people and just things. Well, we're learning about our brothers and sisters in Christ, how they have wrestled with very much of the things that we wrestle with today, and how is it that they clung to to the word of God? How is it that they live faithful lives? And so when we come back to the book of Hebrews, we're reminded that this church that's being written to has faced persecution. They had their property taken from them. Many of them had been thrown in jail. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, the author has been reminding them of the magnificence of the gospel. He's reminding them who Jesus is, what he has done, the salvation that they have, and what we're going to see today, he's going to begin reminding them of the hope that lays ahead of them. Because Jesus didn't just save us from our sins, but he saved us so we would live with him forever in paradise for all of eternity. And so what we're going to look at today is that uh, Jesus atoned us, atoned 
for our sins at his first coming so we could eagerly look towards his second coming. And we're going to look at what does it mean to be a Christian right now and as we look towards the return of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to stand. We stand at the reading of God's Word. We are only reading two verses today, so we should be able to make it through standing. Let me read verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let me pray. Father, Father, we just come to your word right now. And Lord, I pray that what we've already talked about today, brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who have financial needs, who have physical needs, who are under persecution, Families who are, are suffering because loved ones have been killed, martyred for the faith. And as we come into your word today, a letter that is written to a church that's been persecuted, that's experiencing difficulty, that's wondering how do they stand firm in the gospel. And as the author directs them to think and to look towards the second coming of your Son, to the hope that lays before us, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be made well today. Lord, I pray that whatever we are going through, that, we would, that our eyes would be lifted up, that we would remember who we are because of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we have been saved, forgiven, and that we are now saints in your kingdom. There is a day coming when your Son returns and all the kingdoms of this world will be laid down. And there will be one kingdom that stands remaining, and it will be your kingdom. And I pray we long for that day. I pray we live in anticipation of that day. I pray that that day impacts and affects every day that we live. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. I think I'm making noises here. All right. Um. We're going to go a little faster through the first part. I think the first two points, we're going to go a little quicker, and then we'll, we'll, take some, uh, we'll slow down as we get into the third point. At least I think that's how this is going to work. Uh, so number one, a fearful and awful truth. I just want you to see, as we come into the text, there's a fearful and awful truth. Verse 27, we read, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, then after that comes judgment. The fate of every man is to die and face the penalty for his sins. The scripture says that is every person's destiny. And what is the penalty of sin? Uh, Romans 6.23, which I think is up on the screen, says the wages of sin is death. And we know it's not just physical death that the author has in mind because notice what it's contrasted with. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. So he's not just talking death, just physical, but he's talking eternal judgment and eternal life. Those are the two options that we have. And because we're born sinful, every person will live, every person will die, and upon that death we face judgment. 
So that's the awful and the horrible truth. And we're not going to go into uh, describing and looking at that eternal judgment because we've actually done that in, in the weeks past leading up to this as we've walked through uh, just the book of Hebrews and in chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. There's been times we've, we've looked at that. Um, but the question we need to wrestle with is, am I a sinner? Have I lived a perfect life that pleases the one true God of the Bible, or have I not? Those are the questions. Have I, if I'm perfect, then I have nothing to fear. But if I've not lived for the very glory of God, then there is a judgment. And Romans 3.23 answers that question for us. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's that truth that crushed Luther. And it's that truth that ought to crush every single one of us. We have no hope in and of ourselves to save us from the wrath of God. I always think of it like this. If you're covered in, in tar and oil and just filth, can you wipe yourself clean by yourself? No, you're, you're just wiping more tar and dirt and filth on. You have no ability to clean yourself if you're covered in it. You need someone else, something else to wash you, to cleanse you. And that's the gift of God that we have. That's um, the gracious and extravagant gift that God gives us in Jesus. And I want us to look at that in just a moment. But, but I want you to think real quick. Humanity does probably many things, but at least two ways we try to minimize or deny the judgment of God. We'll either, we'll, we'll soften it or minimize it like the Roman Catholic Church has done with the teaching of purgatory or, or, or other religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, there, there's a, a reincarnation. All of those are simply the idea that don't worry, when you die, there's a do-over, you, you get another chance. You, you, if you didn't get it right the first time, you still have time to correct it. So, so that's okay. Or there's the, the way of the atheist, which just totally denies God's judgment. And they will, say, they will say there is no God. And if there's no God, then there's no judgment. Of course, if there's no God, there's also no good or evil, right or wrong. Both of these lifestyles the ones that will minimize God's judgment or the one that completely denies it will lead to humanity living a hedonistic lifestyle. You understand hedonism? A, a life pursuit of carnal, sinful, immediate pleasures. Live how you want. Do how you want. And, and honestly, if we really believe in purgatory and or atheism, that there is no judgment, we ought to live that way. Because this is the one life you have here on earth. So do whatever you want. Because you either get a second chance or at the end you die and there's nothing else left. So you better get all of your pleasure in now. But what we understand according to God's word is neither one of those solutions are true or biblical. The only true solution is the gracious and extravagant gift that God gives us. And the gift is Jesus. In fact, the whole, I thought about just going back through the whole book of Hebrews and looking at just every way the author has presented Jesus throughout this book. 
on how he has saved us, on how he is the image and the radiance of God, on how he is the greater Moses, the greater Joshua, greater than angels, the one uh, who has saved us, the one who is a greater priest, a greater sacrifice. He does what nothing could be done before, and he comes that we would have absolute forgiveness of sins. But notice in verse 28, the author makes a connection with us. Just as we die once, so Jesus came to die once also. But notice that his death is different. In verse 28 we read, So Christ, having been offered once, his death was an offering. We die because because we deserve death. He comes, and like a high priest offering up a sacrifice, so he, as the high priest, offers up his life as a sacrifice for us that we could be saved from our sins. Because notice, Jesus doesn't die for his sin. Who does he die for? Our sins. Look at it. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, this is referring to the church, those who will believe in him, If you go back up to verse 26, it says this, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, to cancel sin. So Jesus came to take our sin, that he would put it away, that he'd cancel it, or as verse 28 says, to bear the sins. He came to take your sin and my sin so that he would go to the cross where he would pay the price for them. And I want to read to you. This is, this is what Luther wrote when he realized that the gift of salvation was not by works. He said this, There I begin to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Passive means it's not something you do. Christ did it. We didn't do it. We are passive in that. Does that make sense? No work of ourself. It was done by Christ. So he says, The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Do you remember when you got saved? Now, some of you, it was like really gradual, and I get that. You, you've been in church a long time in your life, so it's like, well, when exactly was that? But do you remember when you begin to truly understand the truth? You are saved. That you are forgiven. That your shame, that your guilt has been washed clean by the blood. Do you remember that? That's what, that's what Luther is talking about where he says, It was altogether born again. It was as if I entered paradise. That's a truth. That if you believed in Christ, it's true for every single one of us. That when we believe in Christ, we truly do enter into that paradise with God. We are forgiven. We are saved. We are adopted. We are justified. There is no condemnation. Isn't that good news? And because of that, We have a hope. 
And that, that's, where we're, that's where we're spending most of our time. Because Jesus doesn't just save us from something, from the wrath of God, but he saves us to something, or, or we could say to someone. And so we have a confident and glorious hope. And this is what verse 28 brings us to. Notice how quickly, verse 28, the author goes from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. He says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's the first coming, that's what he did at the cross, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So when he appeared the first time, he dealt with sin through his death and resurrection. But the text says now he's not going to come again to deal with sin. It's been done. His one death was sufficient for everyone who believes in him. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, his one death 2,000 years ago is sufficient to wash your sins, past, present, and future, away so you'd be forgiven. So when he comes again, what will he do? It says he's going to save. Now, we often always tie saving into forgiveness of sins. But the way he's using it here is to refer to the fullness of our salvation. He's now going to complete our salvation. He's going to have us experience the fullness of all that he has called us into. So, for example, let me read Romans 8, 29. It says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what you've been saved for. And when he returns, that's what's going to be perfected in you. You're going to be fully conformed into the image of his son. And listen to what he says. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. If you've believed in Christ, then those things are true of you right now, right? You have been predestined. You have been called, and you have been justified. And then, he says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Have you experienced that yet? No. But it's coming. And when does it come? When he returns. On that day, we'll be fully glorified. What does that look like? Fully conformed into the image of his Son. 1 John chapter 3 says the same thing. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. What's that? Jesus. I got you. You're close. But, sorry. It was, it was accurate. But we know that when he appears, so when he appears, we shall be like him. Because why? We'll see him as he is. Re- Revelation 21.1. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. When Christ returns, he brings forth a new heaven and new earth. And we all want to know exactly what that looks like, right? We have no clue, but it's going to be amazing. And I believe there's going to be continuity between this one and that one. But what we know is that there'll be no sin, no effects of sin. It'll be completely and absolutely void of all sin. It'll be perfect. It'll be pure. And maybe one of the better texts that describes that comes from Isaiah chapter 11. Where let me read this. This comes right after the prophecy of Jesus coming. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You get the picture here? Like, don't get tied into like some literal, so like, are we really going to have cows and, and, and lions hanging out? Maybe, but what's the point? The point is total peace. Total and absolute peace and love. Why? Because God's glory fills the earth. There will be no opposition to his glory. There will be no kingdom that opposes his glory. Everything and all creation will be for his glory. When you read in the Old Testament... And you read about like the tabernacle of the temple and it talks about the dishes and the utensils. Do you remember how they had to wash those things? Why? So they'd be holy. So they'd be devoted for the work of God. In this new creation, everything is holy. Meaning everything is devoted to God. Everything lives and exists perfectly for his glory. Nothing will oppose his rule. That's like, that's like me trying to tell you, imagine a color that doesn't exist. You got it in your head? It's impossible. Because all we know how to think is colors that we can have already seen. But this is a reality that's so beautiful, so perfect. I, I, I think the Bible gives us these pictures to create a longing and anticipation in our heart. But they cannot even fully Help us understand the beauty of what life will be like here. And I really don't get that children are playing with snakes. I don't do snakes. I don't do snakes here. I'm pretty sure I won't do snakes there either. Yeah, that's like a weird one. I don't don't get that one. Uh, In fact, in India, this is a total side note, um, but when I was there, uh, there's there's a giant king cobra mound, and it's like giant. So if it was from the ground, it'd be about this tall. There's like 20 holes all coming out of it, which is a little, it's like super freaky. And there's blood poured all over it because they would make sacrifices next to it. Uh, right next to it was the nursery for the children. Like right next door in the, in the pre-K, in the kindergarten. It was a little school right here. Um, but in the new heavens, that'll all work out. <laughs> like I was... Like I, was, I was there with Brian McSwan, and he was one of the pastors up north, and he was like, hey, why don't you go a little closer? I'm like, no, you go. I'll get the picture. Um, anyways, total side note, I don't do snakes. Um, when Jesus returns, he's going to gather and glorify his church. That's our future. Do you get it? Like, that's what's going to happen. There is no judgment. If you believed in Christ, when you die, there is no judgment. Do you know what awaits you? Grace. Grace, 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 grace for all of eternity. For an infinite amount of days, we will experience the very fount, the the eternal fount of grace in Christ Jesus. Never does it run out. Never will we be bored of it. Forever will we be refreshed and filled with everlasting joy. Grace is all that awaits us. And so notice verse 28. How do we live now in hopes of that grace? 
of the fact that we have no judgment. Verse 28, we live as though we are eagerly waiting for Him. Eagerly waiting for Him. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn over to 1 Thessalonians real quick. So if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's to the left, like, I don't know, several pages. Uh, and I want to read a little passage there. And it talks about, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. It talks about when Christ returns. Now, we could read 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter chapter 3. There's lots of texts regarding or referring to the return of Christ. We're going to go through this a little quick. But I want to encourage you to go back over this later. And if you're part of table groups, uh, you, you will go back over this later. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children, children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So what, what I want to do is just unpack, what does it mean we eagerly await him? We've, we've already seen the problem. The awful truth is we all deserve hell. But God saves us by his grace, saves us so we live with him forever. And because we have everlasting grace and peace awaiting us, how do we live now? And so we can look at many different texts on, on what this looks like. But 1 Thessalonians gives us at least four things to consider. Number one, we live in readiness. We're told that Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. Twice, verse 4 and verse 6. I think it says that he will come like a thief. What's the point? Unexpected. Who's it unexpected for? The unbeliever. But he says, for us, we stay awake. Verse 6, we are sober. It's not going to be a surprise for us because we know he's coming. The thief only surprises the one who doesn't know he's coming, right? That's why your guard is down. If you knew the thief was coming, what would you do? You'd be prepared. That's the point. We are prepared, which is why he says, you don't sleep, which isn't really referring to the fact that we don't sleep. Hope you understand that. It's okay to sleep. Sleep is good. Not at this time, but sleep later is good. He says, be sober. He's not saying don't drink. Alcohol is bad. He's saying, but we're sober. We are fully and absolutely alert as we are waiting for Christ to come. So what does that look like? Well, Maybe some of you can relate to this. When my parents got older, uh, and, and my sister and I were still in the house, when they would go on trips, no longer did they have the babysitter come and like just stay with us, but we could actually stay in the house by ourselves. My sister could drive, or maybe I could drive, I don't remember. Um, but we, we had some freedom. 
So my, my parents would live, leave a list of like chores and all this kind of stuff to do. You know what we didn't do while they were gone? Was that list. But you know what we did like hours before they got back? That list. And we're like running around scurrying and doing everything that we could possibly do. But we didn't live in a state of readiness. If they came home early, guess what would have happened? <laughs> well, we probably would have had the babysitter with us next time, right? We were not living in a state of readiness. We thought that we could cram it all in at the very last moment as they're pulling in, you know, finishing fluffing the pillows and having it ready. So when they walk in, we're like, oh, we're good. We're, we're, we're ready for you. But one thing we know is that's not how we live in a state of readiness. Readiness is to be ready for the return of Christ at any moment, which means we grow in the grace and knowledge of God each and every day. I mean, we're spending time in his word. We're seeking to obey him. We're seeking to please him. And I want you to think about this. What else should we be doing? We've been saved from the eternal judgment that we deserve because of our sins and given everlasting joy and peace. And it's all by grace. What else should we do? Like we get so distracted by the things of this world. We get so distracted. And so even like this morning when I'm texting Ali or I'm texting CV and I'm reading, these guys are in jail for their faith. What are we doing? Like, are we living in a state of readiness? Are we, are we living each and every day, husbands, fathers, as a means of advancing the gospel and training our children? Are we getting in quarrels and fights about stupid things that do not matter? Or do we fight for the gospel and stand on that alone? I just want to encourage you. How are we living in a state of readiness? How are you living? There's nothing else that matters. In everything that we do, whether you're a mom, a, a husband, a father, a wife, whether you work out in the world somewhere, those are all things that you do as a disciple of Christ that you would help others know the truth of the gospel and you would shine forth with the light of the gospel. So whatever you do, it's all about the gospel. It's all about how do I represent the gospel? How do I share the gospel? How do I show others the hope that I have? In order to do that, we, we must continue to grow in our knowledge of God, our love for God, which takes place through his word, the gathering with the church. So we live in a state of readiness. Number two, we do not fear death. Look at verse 9 there in 1 Thessalonians. God has not destined us for wrath. Do you remember that Romans 8 one? We've been predestined so that we'd be glorified eventually. If you've believed in Christ, he's saying, look, you will not taste my wrath. Think about the implications for that. What, what, what's fearful of death? Like, why is death scary? Death can be scary because we don't know what happens past it, right? Death can be scary because we know what happens past it. There's judgment. But God says, I am the creator of life. I have saved you that you would have eternal life. Literally, my life in you is what he's saying. You will taste no death. When you close your eyes at death, you will open them in my presence. And on, and on a day when my son returns, he will make this earth new and we will live in absolute paradise with him. What's that truth meant to do? 
make us passive? It's to fill us with boldness. It's to fill us with courage that what is there to fear? There's nothing that we're to fear, which is why earlier when we're talking about brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, they're being arrested even though the state has now said it's illegal to share the gospel. If you share anything other than the, than the, religious, the religion of the state, you will be arrested. Why will Christians break that law every single day? Because we don't fear death. Because what we hope in is far greater than anything else this world has to offer. There's people, and you probably have heard it said, let's see if I'll say it right, that um, that Christian is too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Have you heard that? That's stupid. I feel like I've said, my wife's going to get me. I said stupid at the conference. I said stupid here already. It was like the third time. She's always like, honey, you can't say that. So it's dumb. <laughs> She's dumb. But, but think about it. What are we supposed to be? heavenly minded the problem is we're too earthly minded we get absorbed in the things of this earth and and things on, on this earth can be good we're not against things we're not against possessions we're not against money we're against those things becoming great things in our life that they distract us from the true king who has saved us from our sins but the thing that we need to focus on most is christ colossians chapter 3 since then you have been raised with christ set your minds on what Things above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We're to live in the very hope that we will spend eternity with Him. And only when we're heavenly minded will we risk everything here in this world. I've heard many people say, uh, you know, we, we should be careful about going overseas. We should be careful about, you know, sending people uh, to places where there's persecution. Because, because what if the husband dies? Or what if the father dies and they leave their family home? And honestly, I think what our children need is to see people who radically live for the gospel willing to risk their lives at any moment. The church can raise our children. We need people who will seriously take the words of Scripture and say, I don't fear death. I'm not going to be disobedient to the commands of Scripture because I'm wondering how will I raise my children. We need to think about how we can be fathers. But sometimes our children, not sometimes, our children need to see Christians who radically say Christ is greater than everything. When you look at church history, you see men and women regularly laying down their lives. That is what the church was born out of. And it's when we're heavenly minded that we will be resting in the peace that our God is sovereign. And he will take care of our families and our children ultimately. Number three, we share the gospel. Verse three says, oh, well, I was going to say something about Luther. We'll skip that. We'll just go, we share the gospel. Verse 3 in 1 Thessalonians says, There is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains, upon Jesus, uh, come upon them um, as a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Do you remember, do you remember the story of Noah? Do you remember what everyone was doing when Noah's, Noah's building the boat? They're hanging out, and they're drinking, and they're, they're just living life however they want. And they said, there's nothing to fear. And that's literally how Paul says the world will act. 
And what do we know that's going to happen? There is a judgment coming. And so our, our job as Christians is to show everyone what the true ark is. Not a boat, but it's Christ. Our only hope is Christ. And this world doesn't think they need Jesus. They think they can live however they want. But Christ is going to come like a thief in the night, we're told. And on that day, they will experience judgment if they've not yet believed in him. So our role is to share the gospel. Michael came up a couple weeks ago and and, and passed out tracts. A simple thing, even tonight, people are coming to your house asking for stuff. Give them candy. Give them lots of candy. And give them tracts about who Christ is. Share the gospel. That's just one simple way. And number four, we encourage the church. Verse 11 says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another. We need the church because without the church, we can forget the word of God. And other things become more important or we think other things become more important. We begin to drift from the truth of the gospel. And so one reason we need to gather like this and in table groups and many different groups is to regularly encourage one another, to love one another, to build each other up, to make sure we are staying obedient to the truth of God's word. I love um, the, way, the way Luther's story kind of ends a little bit is that he's called to come before the Diet of Worms, which is the, is, is the council. And he thought that he was going to have a conversation with the Catholic Church at this point. But they weren't interested in a conversation. They, they laid out a table and they put all of his books on the table. And they asked him two questions. Are these your books? Which he said yes. And then they said, will you recant them? So basically, recant and live, refuse and die. So he had to wrestle through that. So he said, give me a day to think and pray it over. So he does that. And at six o'clock the next day, here's the knock on his door. They bring him back before everyone. And this is what he says. Since then, your, your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer, I will give it in this manner, not embellished, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either the pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradict themselves. I am bound to the scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. I pray that's how we stand. That's how we live in a state of readiness. Be captivated by this word and this word alone. And let this word inform how we live, how we act, what we do. There's nothing greater than the gospel. There's nothing greater than the gospel. We're called to live in a state of readiness and everything in this world wants to distract us that we would not be ready for Christ. So it's at times like this when we gather that we're encouraging each other to be ready, to remember what's most important in this world. Because Christ is the only solution who saves us from our sins. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the one who has saved us, that we would forever experience his grace for all of eternity. That's Reformation Day. And that's how we're called to live each and every day. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to pray, and then we're going to partake of the elements 
and remember the gospel of Christ. Father, Father, we thank you that you have saved us from sin, that we would live in eternity with you and for you. God, I pray that we would be more and more heavenly minded. I pray every single day, may we be captivated by your word. May we grow in the truth and the knowledge and the grace of your word. May we live in a state of readiness. May we not fear death. May we share the gospel with boldness, knowing that it is the only hope of the world. And God, may we encourage our brothers and sisters to stand firm. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, the truth that you have saved us. In your name, Jesus, amen.